A couple of weeks ago, Harris and I chatted with Joel Murphy about his efforts on the Spiro Wave, a bridge ventilator built by Boyce Technologies based on the open-source MIT event design. Joel began his career as an artist making kinetic sculptures before learning and teaching electronics. He's founded and worked with several companies that focused on interfacing humans to electronics in interesting ways, such as OpenBCI, Timpin, and Pulse Sensor. Please note that we recorded this episode about two weeks ago, which means some of the information about the Spiro Wave might have changed. For example, where we talk about some designs being open source, that might no longer be the case. The Spiro Wave team does have plans to share parts of their design to help other people manufacture similar devices. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. All right, welcome to the show, Joel. Thanks for joining us. Let's do a quick review for anybody who might not be aware of what's going on right now. Specifically, I think most people are aware of the COVID-19 out- outbreak, but why is it important? Why is making medical equipment so important right now? Well, I think that the, basically it's hard not to be aware that there is a lack of equipment, um, that the hospitals and um uh, treatment centers are struggling to um, allocate resources to take care of patients, not only who have COVID, but also who have just whatever you might have uh, coming into the hospital in March and April of 2020. So the resources are thin, so production of medical equipment is is vital. And you were telling us in New York that there was an interview with a doctor. Somebody was walking down an ER, and they were just trying to treat people in the hallways, right? Yeah, I saw this on uh, the Washington Post uh, uh, website. They had interviewed, or the, there was a doctor at Mount Sinai in Queens who was doing a uh, video of his day, basically. And uh, he showed up at 7 a.m., showed us how he put on his PPE equipment, and then did a walkthrough of the emergency room hallways all the rooms were full and the hall was uh, crowded with people who were being treated in the hallways because there was not enough room in rooms to put them. So there is definitely a, um, an overloading of the, of the facilities that we have that, to take care of people. Wow, that's just incredible um, and heartbreaking, really. Yeah, so- it's, it's, uh, it's a really tense and tough situation, especially for the people involved on the front. So... Remind me here, what's PPE? That's personal protective equipment, right? Yeah, PPE. So, the, for example, the doctor was saying he would put on an N95 mask. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that N95 means that it stops 95% of particulates. Is that right? Anyway, so he puts on an N95 mask, and then over that he puts on a surgical mask in addition to safety glasses or a face screen, depending upon who he's seeing and what sort of performance he needs to do, whether he's intubating someone or something like this. Right. And that's, and that's to help prevent the virus getting to the doctor as well as spreading to other patients, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mostly, you know, hopefully he assumes that he's healthy, but he's trying to protect himself from acquiring the virus. And he was saying at the very beginning of the day at 7 a.m., he had one mask to wear for the whole day and uh, he finished his shift at 7 that evening. 
Wow. And doctors are generally supposed to replace them after each patient, right? I'm not sure what the protocol is. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I would assume you would want to dispose of all of your disposables before you go meet somebody else. Yeah. Right. Or, or at least replace it regularly or somehow sanitize it. That would make sense. So yeah. with a shortage of that, doctors are in dire need of this PPE. And tell me about uh, ventilators. Why are those important? Why do I keep reading a whole bunch of articles about people trying to make ventilators? Well, I, you know, I've, I've had a chance to do some research, I'm sure as many of our, your listeners have, um, into what happens to you when you get this virus. And um, a lot of what happens in the very critical stages is you're not able to breathe because your lungs are so full of fluid. And because we don't have a cure for this virus, their treatments options are limited. And if it gets to the point where you have so much trouble breathing that it's causing you more stress and you're spending more energy, it kind of makes more sense to sedate you, put a tube in your throat, and have a machine breathe for you. And at this point, it's very, very sad to say, but at this point, from what I understand, the machine is trying to keep you alive long enough for you to fight off the virus and recover. Um, so it's certainly not anything anyone wants to, you know, sign up for. Um, and it is a very drastic, invasive procedure because you're being sedated. You're basically being medically paralyzed and then intubated, meaning a tube goes down your throat into your lungs and a machine will take over the breathing part of your uh, vital uh, life-giving uh, uh, body activity. The trouble is that we're low on ventilators. We don't have enough ventilators. There's lots of reasons for it. The press is full of stories about how our you know, capitalist system has uh, put us down this path of not having enough ventilators, and we're just not really prepared for this kind of situation, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and I want to just speak to that really quick, because I, I, went, I know we're going to get into detail about a project, but I just wanted to address that the sort of structural thing because I've seen a lot of conversations in maker communities online about this. You know, the, some people I think think this is like a random event. And I think other people think of this as a revealing event where what this crisis is showing is it's showing that there was uh, like pockets of risk in our system that we weren't necessarily aware of. I know that there's others, you know, kind of in the first camp say, hey, who could have seen this coming? It's totally unpredictable. Things like this happen every once in a while. But I, I'm in the second camp and I think we're all in agreement on that, that this is revealing risk that we had in our system that we didn't know. And there's like maker themes in this around supply chain and where do where do things come from for making things, uh, right to repair and just the understanding and, and just technology access in general. How do these machines work? How do we repair them? And just the restrictions on them. Uh, just access to technology overall and in terms of like price point, and so there's, there's, I think, structural reasons why this is worse. And then the fact that lots of countries are dealing with it at once and that the ability to tackle this isn't distributed around the world. I think that's making part of what's making this a lot harder, not to mention testing equipment and things like that. And so, you know, I don't think that anybody wants to survive off something that's like made in a garage. But what we're seeing is that like there are situations where doctors have no protective equipment or they're using like their 10th choice out of a list of five. And that's where I think the more advanced projects is what we're going to talk about today, especially because of Joel's background. 
there's a lot around face shields. There's a lot around sewn masks. That's important. Those are the best things. Social distancing and washing your hands. Like that's what we should all be doing. But in addition, I think there's these other interesting topics that we're going to talk about. Uh, so I just wanted to get that out of the way in case there's any uh, sort of trolls or whatever who are like, what are you talking about? Like you're going to try to save somebody's life in your garage. And it's like, well, what we're seeing in different places is that sometimes those things are required. And so anyway, I just wanted to get that out of the way. And if you guys disagree with me, please say, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if, if it was my life, like if the only chance I had to live was getting something made in the garage with a tube stuck to my throat, I'm going to check that. If it's death or possibly getting hurt from somebody's garage machine, I'll take possibly getting hurt. And that's, you know, I'm, I read something on Make Magazine, their, their blog. They had something that's like, this is plan C, right? Plan A is, you know, what hospitals have, FDA-approved equipment. Plan B is corporations step in and help produce this. And plan C is people make it in their garage. And we might be down to plan C at this point. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you, Kenny. I mean, uh, 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 the, the, um, the thing I disagree with, though, is that I think that we did know. I think we did know that there was a lack. I think that there was plans that were attempted to be, have been made. And I think that there was um, it's a lack of expertise at high levels that has um, caused a lot of the, um, the, 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 uh, the degree of the crisis and the extent of it and the severity of it. I don't think we could have avoided it, not in a heartbeat, but we could have avoided maybe the extent and the degree of it if we had listened and been more prepared. I think we did know. Experts knew this was coming, and they knew that we didn't have enough ventilators, and all of this stuff was known. Yeah. But Not again, you know... Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say, all of the things that I'm going to say on your show are my opinions. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I definitely a, agree. I'm not an expert. No, I definitely agree that there were signs that this was coming. I think there are some people who say, oh, who could have seen it coming? But I, I'm with you. I, I think we saw this coming not, not, not only years ago when pandemic preparation plans were made and, you know, multiple years ago, but even just months ago, you know. And so I think this is, this is yeah, this is like a worst case scenario. But it's happening. And so I, I want to jump in, you know, we've got some really interesting questions about this project event in particular. And so I want Sean to jump in on that, but I, I want to get all that stuff out of the way. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's, that's good to show. And people have different opinions on this. Um, absolutely. And I, I look at Italy to see what they're going through, knowing that we'll probably, there's a good chance the U.S. is going to have to go through something very similar. And you look at, you know, when, when the outbreak started happening there and you follow that trajectory and it's like, oh, they were doing certain lockdown period or uh, things in the country or in certain regions. And we haven't done those yet, which really scares me. Um, and, you know, months ago when I was hearing that this was a 10 day incubation or whatever it was, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't remember what they're saying, but it's, you know, give or take like a week, give or take a few days for an incubation. And you could be spreading it not have symptoms um i was like this is bad because of that long incubation period people could be spreading this um i highly recommend watching the movie contagion if you have not done so it is almost everything in that movie that has happened has happening right now like everything from like like politicians trying to force their own agenda on this to uh the cdc responding and trying to cover some things like everything has happened the only difference is there's a little bit of hollywood mumbo jumbo that happens in that movie but it's it's kind of scary so if you haven't seen it highly recommend it um do they have this good, like you know, scary maker movie. response in that movie of like people making things is that include i haven't seen it <laughs> uh 
I, I don't think so because the, the virus, it, the virus was, you know, so Hollywood deadly that like anybody who got it would die like immediately, except for like Matt Damon, of course, right? I'll, spoiler. <laughs> um, but, but you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, people got pneumonia and their lungs were filling with fluid. So we had to try to save them with what we've got. There wasn't that. It was like, oh, don't get the virus at all. So they were, you know, it was all about heavy, heavy quarantine and people's responses to that. Um, just because it was like, you know, it, it had like a 50% death rate. You know, it's not the 1% that we're seeing, but, you know, I've heard I've heard things like if people can't get ventilators and medical attention, it might be 8 9% death rate, which is what we try to avoid. That's, that's why we're doing social distancing. We don't want an 8% death rate. So, um, unfortunately, the maker aspect was not in that movie that I remember to some degree. Um, however, we are seeing the maker community step up in the actual coronavirus outbreak. And Joel, you are working on a very cool project. Can you tell us about the event? What's the story behind it? Uh, yeah, so the event uh, is a uh, design for something that it would be called an emergency ventilator. Uh, this is a, a design originally put together by folks at MIT. Um, and I want to sort of uh, draw back the curtain a bit on um, what this actually is or could be before we get too far into it, just so people know and understand the, the extent and limitations of this device and what it, what it is. So it is not a ventilator. A ventilator is something that is in a hospital, which is connected to an oxygen supply line under pressure, which has all kinds of infrastructure that's not only it, but what it attaches to, to keep somebody alive and by helping them breathe. If you have ever seen a TV show or a movie where somebody is in sort of an emergency distress and they need to have a sort of a strange blue, like football shaped bag held over their head and then it's squeezed by someone with their hands, this thing is called an ambu bag. Um, it's an ambulatory emergency bag and it's used for helping someone breathe or breathing for someone in a manual way. And for the most part, this device is used by someone and it's used to squeeze. Um, I had a conversation with a doctor who told me that uh, at this point, if they have a lack of uh, breathing equipment or if they have a lack of uh, you know, uh, medical personnel, they would ask a loved one to hold the ambu bag and to squeeze the ambu bag and to count a certain number of counts for the squeeze in and the release. And then if you stop doing that, your loved one will die. So we're, we're at this point where these kinds of scenarios are happening. These ambu bags are being used in the place of ventilators or in emergency situations where someone can't get to enough equipment all the way. So they're, they're useful and they're vital tools. What the MIT guys did, and gals and people, I don't know who it was, they, um, they essentially made a mechanical ambu bag squeezer. So it does certain things that you would hope that a, uh, a ventilator would do. You can program the breaths per minute. You can program the IE ratio, which is the inhalation versus exhalation ratio, how fast you breathe in and how slow you breathe out, given your breaths per minute um, uh, you know, uh, parameter. Um, 
and uh, um, also it measures pressure. So you have to measure the pressure, your peak pressure, because you don't want to put so much pressure on someone that you injure them. Um, and you want to make sure that you have um, something called a, a PEEP, P-E-E-P, which is the pressure of your lungs when you aren't breathing, on the end of the exhalation. Um, and from my understanding, at the end of the exhalation, you don't want to have your lungs get to ambient air pressure because then your alveoli will stick together, potentially, and it takes a certain amount of pressure to pop them open, to get them to have the air around them. So you want to make sure there's a little bit of pressure in the lungs at the end of the breath, maybe, f uh, what is it, 15 inches of mercury or 5 inches, of, sorry, of, of water. Inches of water is the measurement that they use. Um, Anyway, a small amount of pressure there. So you have to be monitoring pressure, counting breaths per minute, making sure that your inhalation and exhalation are timed right. Um, so it's not a trivial instrument to make. Uh, as someone who's a maker who understands a bit about mechanics and programming Arduinos and driving stepper motors or servo motors, you could sort of start to wrap your mind around how you might put together a, some software that would run one of these machines with a sensor you know, pressure sensor and feedback on that into your system and whatnot. Um, but again, it's it's not uh, uh, as sophisticated a device as a, uh, uh, a ventilator, but it could definitely help in a situation where you've got overflow. You give the people who are in dire need the ventilators, and you give the people in less of a need these ambubag squeezers, and you can count on them to be setting uh, uh, the breast per minute and the IE ratio and everything the way the doctor wants it to be for their particular uh, need. And you can let it, let it run and it'll take care of the patient. So these kind of act as a stopgap measure between when somebody really needs a ventilator and they need help breathing, they can't, they can't breathe on their own. Is that right? Yes, yes. This is an emergency situation, emergency tool, an emergency, in air quotes, ventilator. Now, this would also be potentially used for someone who is intubated. Um, this kind of uh, facilitation of breathing is not really done for someone who's got a conscious awareness of what's going on. This is someone who's been put into a medical, uh, I don't want to say coma, because I'm not a doctor, um, you know, you basically paralyze someone. You put someone un under. It's an anesthetistic uh, sort of approach, right? You put someone under, you basically get the rest of their body to calm the f*** down, and you breathe for them, and you try to keep them alive as long as you can in hopes that their body will fight off the disease. Wow. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, in a sad number of cases, people die under ventilation because their body just can't fight hard enough to to fight back against the disease. Yeah, that is, oof, that's a tough situation we're facing. And, you know, I can't imagine going through that or having a loved one go through that. And it's really, it's really tough. I mean, so, so my relationship to the project was I was called up, um, uh, I guess, a week ago Monday. Um, it's now the first week of April uh, by a friend who works in the Navy Yard here in Brooklyn. And she said, can you help out with this problem? And I said, yes, of course. So I ran over there uh, and got involved with that team. And I worked um, basically three days, pulled an all-nighter on Wednesday, 
to get a prototype put together of the ventilator. There were a few different teams. There was a mechanical design team, which was Boyce, Industri uh, Boyce Technologies in Queens, uh, and they put together all the mechanics. And there was the um, electrical design team and programming. I was on the programming side. My role was basically to say, okay, well, I need to place these sensors here. I need to test this sensor, uh, make sure that we can drive the motors okay. I was basically doing, uh, you know, uh, I was wearing a, a bunch of hats running around. Um, we had one person focused on the uh, uh, algorithm for controlling the breathing. And in the very end, all of our you know, commits got laced together in uh, in GitHub so that we could actually put together our prototype. And then when I left, the hardware was being driven to Boston to go under a test. It's called a porcine test, porcine test. Um, essentially what they do, yes, with pigs, they, they put a pig under anesthesia and the machine is supposed to keep the pig alive for X number of hours. In this case, I think we were like eight to ten hours of, of uh, breathing for the pig. So it worked. And the pig, li the pig lived. The pig All right. Lived. Yeah. Congratulations. It it's a I really mean, great feeling. That's, that's a heck of a you know, short turnaround for such a project to, and then go through and succeed on this test. That's, congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I thank you on behalf of the team that was there doing it as well. Um, uh, you know, I, as I mentioned, my, my contribution was small but necessary. Sure. Um, and I would also say that the folks at MIT, they put in about two weeks ahead of us. Um, and we had just about a week or so of really dedicated effort making it go. Yeah. So tell me, what are some of the issues you're running into? Um, have you had hospitals accept it yet? Or what are some of the issues with getting it in? Because I know this, this device is probably not FDA certified. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that. But... Um... <laughs> Right, you approach a hospital. You're like, "Look, we made this thing in this this maker community with these small companies. You guys need this." And they're like, "Yeah, let's see some FDA certification." Or are they saying, "Like, we'll take all the help we can get." What are the problems you're running into? Uh, well, uh, Sean, I'd say you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> first of all, um, uh, Boyce is not a small company. Oh, they, sorry. Uh, they're Boyce, Boyce's clients are the MTA and New York City and Verizon. Um, and they do production of stuff in-house. They've got a handful of welding robots that will actually find the seam and weld it. Um, they've got a, 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 a row of um, CNC mills. I mean, they're, they are uh, an absolutely fantastic um, uh, fabrication and design tech firm here in New York. And the one thing you know that they know what the hell they're doing is all the floors are spotless. <laughs> That's a good sign. <laughs> um, so, so the idea then is that they would produce and they could produce thousands a week wow. uh, of these devices. They've got their own SMT soldering line. Um, and I think they're using a uh, board house somewhere in the region. I don't know if it's New Jersey or somewhere, but... So everything is local, everything is quick turn, everything is happening all at once, and they could produce thousands on a, at a week. Um, and they also have uh, uh, access to a lot of um, uh, contacts. So there's someone from a company that is t essentially takes your idea and makes it pass FDA. So in the design process that I was a part of, we were getting feedback 
on how we could change what we were doing to make sure that we could get our initial design passed through a, uh, a fast-tracked FDA. I think FDA changed some rules um, to facilitate people doing the kinds of things that this team was doing. And also, um, again, the fact that we're not a ventilator, we're an ambu-bag squeezer, makes it easier to get through some of these regulatory hurdles because the ambu-bag is not being changed. It's just being squeezed. And so how we're squeezing it, how we report errors, you know, how we're able to be uh, programmed by a, a physician and the, the control uh, over it and that kind of stuff is all uh, pretty critical. So you guys are really just, you know, guys and gals, you, y'all are just uh, making this device and then getting your approval on top of it. So by the time you ship to hospitals, you know, this isn't someone hacking away something in the garage. This is a professionally made device that will hopefully have FDA approval by the time it gets to hospitals, right? Yes, yes. And, um, it, but it is also based on work done in, inside of this maker community university group at MIT. Um, and I would also say that um, not only the, the pig test happens, uh, I think there was actually another pig test that happened after I uh, left the group. I haven't been with them for about a week. Um, uh, there will be IRBs, and IRB is an acronym, and I forget what the hell it stands for, but it has to do with the uh, human trial. So there's going to be uh, testing of the device and verification of the device um, in a human population. Um, and, you know, through the work that I did with OpenBCI, I know a, a lot of really smart people and a lot of really sciencey people and there's a fellow, David, I know, who's at Mount Sinai. He's a neuroscientist researcher, and um, he was tapped into the uh, clinical. So now he's working in hospital with patients. I'm not sure if they're giving him their overload or if he's actually interfacing with COVID patients, but he was saying, send it, send it. I can do IRBs. I do them for breakfast. Send it. I'll do it. I'll do it for you. So so it's nice to be able to, you know, it's all about networking. It's all about the community. It's all about making sure that these people are connected together so they know each other and they can say, okay, we need an IRB tomorrow. Here's someone who can start doing this, you know. Well, so what I'm hearing, I feel like the maker community and the open source community, there's really, it sounds like there's two levels in which that's important. One is having an open approach to sort of seeing what's been done before, what can we learn from existing projects, existing source code. And, and the other seems to be the network and the community effect that, that gets built when people have these sort of shared hobbies and interests and that you never know how a relationship that you sparked through a previous company, like an entrepreneur like yourself, or maybe through a, a university or something like that. I know you used to teach at NYU. So but it sounds like those are the kind of the two like maker and open source lessons here is it's the, the sharing of knowledge on projects and then the network. Is, does that sound like the right sort of way that this can be then leveraged into like a very formal corporate partnership of like a properly produced certified product? Yeah, that does sound just about like the way things are operating in this in this project. I do know that, um, or at least from what I understand, the, the principals at Boyce were spearheading it. And so I think that they were looking around saying, what can we do? How can we help? What's out there? What's low-hanging fruit? 
we're not going to make a uh, ventilator. That's just out, out, that's outside of our scope, right? But what can we do now? Because making a ventilator is going to be a long-term project. And that's how they discovered the work by the folks at MIT. And I believe everything that MIT did was based on open source uh, platforms, um, uh, Arduino and whatnot. Um, and I did laser cutting plexiglass for their original prototypes to laminate up, you know, something that would be wide enough to squeeze an Ambu bag and this kind of stuff. And some uh, servo motor, I think that, I don't know how of widely available it was, but they, they had a certain amount of thought put into their uh, supply chain issues, I think, from the beginning, um, uh, which is another problem that you have to think about because you're not just thinking about making one, you're thinking about making 20 to 100,000 of these things. Uh, and so you're getting into real supply chain issues with that. And um, that's something that I think people who are makers, people who are in small business like myself, who are trying to get things produced and trying to make sure that you're you're going to have not only customers but product to give to those customers in like six months or eight months or a year or whatever. You're conscious of supply chain. You're conscious of EOL. You need to really understand and sort of map out your future and, and make sure that, you know, what you're doing now, even if something goes EOL or there is a, a dearth of this, this one supply, that you've got things in the back. You've got some things in your back pocket that you can drop in fairly easily. You know, I think what it was that there was like a really great lesson for me was years and years ago, I think it was when Leonardo came out from the kids at Arduino. They had their Arduino board and it had two footprints on it. It had one footprint for the smaller package nestled inside the footprint for the larger package. So they could use the same PCB layout design and just change the bomb based on availability of AVRs to then keep their production lines going, you know. So it's these kinds of things like designing smart and designing for, uh, I mean, I kind of want to say designing for failure, but that's not really what I mean. Designing for, you know, a situation where you could be screwed. But then, oh, your past self was looking out for your future self. Design in your backup plan. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, you know, for example, a lot of the work that we did is getting transferred into another design team in-house at Boyce. Um, and this is an essential transition that has to happen, especially if we're doing something at this kind of scale, because... You're talking about supply chain issues that are real, like 100,000. Where are we going to get 100,000 of the sensor? And how do we do that? You have to have the connections to talk to the manufacturing company to be able to say, okay, here, here we are. We're this company. We already have a connection with you guys, whether it's Honeywell or whatever, and say, okay, we want 100,000 of these things. Here's our you know, uh, quantity that we want every quarter delivered to us. Because they're not, they don't have 100000 on the shelf. You set yourself up. They know you've got good credit. They know you're going to pay every quarter. And they expect to deliver and get paid for on that. And that's how you roll out 100 pieces, 100,000 pieces over a year or whatever, you know. And then you've also got issues of, um, you know, what are you actually trying to make? Well, you're trying to make a life-saving device. 
And I'm sure that all of your listeners have looked at a data sheet, you know, and a lot of your listeners might have even looked at a microcontroller data sheet, you know, just sort of bite your tongue and pour yourself a glass of beer and dive into the microcontroller data sheet. Um, But I bet a lot of your listeners haven't actually looked all the way at the bottom of the microcontroller data sheet where it says, this device is not intended for life-saving applications. But, you know, companies like AVR and Microchip and Freescale and all these companies, they've got a subset of their parts that they will say are good for life-saving, and most of them are not. Some of them are, you know, you see automobile spec, you see mill spec, and there are all these different specifications for things. And so in creating this tool, turns out, the AVR chips that makers are using on their Arduino boards are more often than not, not rated for life-saving applications. So, you know, makers in their garage making something, I mean, I, I agree with you, Sean, if push comes to shove and I need to get, you know, my neighbor to, to shove a ballpoint pen into my throat to keep me alive, I'd say maybe it's worth that risk. Um, but hopefully that won't happen, and we'll be using devices that actually are somewhat certified. Yeah, you want them to meet spec. Yeah, and that spec exists for a reason. Uh, totally yeah. agree. Joel, I was wondering, just your ability, just a personal question, as a small business owner, and you've had lots of different endeavors over the years, how did that affect your ability to jump into this project? You know, I mean, do you feel like that was important for you just on a personal level to have the flexibility that you have in order that when you got that phone call, you could just say, yeah, because I think that there's a lot of people who don't have that flexibility. And that, that sounds like a, that was really important for you in order to be able to say yes to this thing. Uh, yeah, I think there's a couple of a couple of ways to answer that question. I mean, first of all, it's just the um, just the, the logistics, just the actual ability to do it. So. Because I, you know, I own my own consulting firm and I've got a couple of startups that I'm managing, um, I'm my own boss and I can decide to do whatever the hell I want, you know, <laughs> so I can, I can, I can pack up and go somewhere else. Um, so that's, that's a big part of it that I think maybe a, a lot of people don't have that kind of ability. Um, and then I think also that, I mean, you guys know, I mean, you, you, you do a lot of things and you get a lot of experience and you fail a lot. Most of the time you, you fail and you learn from those failures and you get more confidence and you say, yeah, I can do that. And um, uh, uh, I wasn't sure how I was going to be useful. I wasn't sure um, if the work that was going to be needed to be done was going to be over my head or because, you know, we've all got our own hobby horses and our own ruts we get into. And there are certain things about technology that are, you know, I don't even get. I'm still trying to understand, you know, some really basic aspects of networking, for example. Um, uh, but uh, but still, you know, I'm I'm especially in this time. It's um, it feels so good to be able to say, I'm here to help. I want to help. I think that it's really important. I think that, and I think that the maker community and the the um, DIY community is um, really sort of well placed and already has it baked in to share, to help, to give freely, to, um, to, to, to make a difference, you know. 
And to understand that you can make a difference in ways that maybe are not necessarily direct, you know. Um, you don't have to you don't have to be the person doing the magical, wonderful thing. You could actually be contributing a little bit, you know, finding a bug or or um, you know whatever it is to to do your part. Um, I think that that's one of the things that we've really got going for us is we already have people that understand community, understand that we're contributing to the commons and our common good. That's a great point. I think even if you're not you know, physically capable of sewing masks or helping out with like an event project, I, I think even just sharing information or connecting people um, can be hugely helpful. If you connect the right two people, like somebody knew Joel Murphy, and let's call him up to help on this project, right? And that was that person acted as a connector in that situation, which brought you to help out Boyce and the team to make these. So, you know, I think there are ways to be useful, even if it's not direct. Indirect can be incredibly helpful. Even an anesthetized pig was able to help. So, yeah. you know, I mean, if a pig can do that, surely a conscious, thoughtful, smart person can do something, right? Absolutely. Yes, yes. And and uh, as far as I know, the pig is still alive. <laughs> Outstanding. That's great. You can help and it might not yeah, kill you. I'll, yeah. I mean, that's a, lo a lot of times what they'll do with these kinds of tests is they'll keep the pig alive for like 24 or 48 hours or some some long time. And then the thing that they have to do is they have to sacrifice the pig and then look at its lung tissue. Oh, under a microscope so that they can understand, you know, if they did any damage to the pig or not. And, you know, I guess fortunately, unfortunately, the time limit on the test that we did, the one that I was aware of anyway, was short enough that we could let the pig go. Good for the pig. Yeah. That's, that's a good day then. <laughs> so tell us what can other, you know, let's say you're a maker, you're an engineer, and you want to find some way to help out. What are some ways people can get involved? Uh, well, there there is a lot of um, of initiatives going on uh, in a lot of places. I think um, uh, Harris, we shared some links together. Um, I there's a group in New York. Um, uh, uh, I want to say it's CMR. We can put links in the show notes yep. or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, uh, and there's a that that's a local New York group. Harris, you said there was a group in Colorado that you're aware of that's doing stuff. There's 3D printers that are running. There's uh, other groups that are doing stuff. I mean, um, I think that uh, Open Source Hardware Association Open Source Hardware Association website is probably a good resource for people. I know that the board is working on putting together uh, lists to post of um, activities and sort of uh, websites that are warehouses for communities coming together. And help you get involved. Um, I saw a sign uh, on a staple to a tree in my neighborhood, which was the local Bedsty Strong group here in Brooklyn, looking for volunteers to help deliver food. Uh, you know, I think there are lots of ways that you can help out, and I think that it, I think that you know, trying to be um, hyper local is a really good first place to start. Like, help your neighbor. Um, and I think if you have access to tools and equipment, uh, it's important to understand how you can use those both uh, effectively and safely to, uh, to help people. I mean, it's not enough just to print, um, 
you know, a, a, a headset for a face shield, there's certain protocols you have to follow once you get that thing printed and how you keep your space clean and how you're able to make sure that you are have your, the correct PPE when you're dealing with the finished parts and getting them to the right locations and understanding that supply chain. Like, where are the people who need it? What do they need? Maybe they have enough face masks. Maybe they need something else, you know? So um, uh, it's, it's, it's important to really understand that, um, and I heard this on the radio a couple of weeks ago. It still, it feels like a year ago, for Christ's sake. But, uh, you know, there were some people being interviewed, the how can you help question. Sewing mask was a big topic. Um, and uh, the person being interviewed said, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon. And um, maybe the skills that you have are not apl applicable or useful right now, but they may be useful in a week. They may be useful in two weeks. We're not going to be done with this for a while. You know, so... Um, uh, I think part of the thing that people need to also understand is that um, uh, people can like overhelp or help in a way that's they're not really understanding how to help. It's not a it's not good to just start running. You have to figure out what the path you're going to run is first and see where the obstacles are, um, and understand that there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way you do, and they're already doing stuff. So you may not be the one who's doing the sewing. You might be the one doing the packing of the boxes. Um, so, yeah, it's like um, get in touch with your community and understand where you're needed, I think, is the best, the best advice. And then also, um, if we can, you know, at the end of this show and post some links to places that we're aware of, to people are actually doing stuff and might need volunteers or assistance, that'd be great too. Yeah. Uh, definitely will if you if we can share links via email if you think of stuff um, we'll put them in the show notes and I, I know of one if you're on Facebook there's the open source COVID-19 medical supplies it's a public group um, there's actually a lot of good discussions in there um, and people talking people talking about exactly what you're saying um, like what are good designs you know resources to go and make sure you're handling things appropriately but lots of people figuring out how to 3d print face shields and people working on the ventilators or the event types of systems absolutely and the the colorado group that you mentioned joel yeah it's uh make for co and, and, and my only other thought here I, I really like how you said everything and you really summarized it well my only hope also moving forward is that this maybe galvanizes um more interest in healthcare and medical device and uh, other issues just kind of more broadly on a moving forward basis. I heard a statistic the other day, a saying the other day, people were like, when you're employed, the employment rate is 100% or 0%. And when you're unemployed, the unemployment rate is 100%, right? And I think with healthcare and, and, and medical issues, especially in the United States, it's kind of like, hey, I'm healthy, I'm good. But I think there's a lot of people who have very serious medical issues that are really disruptive for them. And hopefully this will raise awareness about public health and maybe that some of these challenges will lead to an opening up of care and devices and equipment. And, you know, hopefully it, it'll just increase awareness of that overall. I think that there's been a consciousness awakened in this because it's been such a severe event that I, I think this is really going to change things. I have a hard time imagining these like stupid startup ideas where it's like, you know, Uber for cat, do cat toys and stuff like that. I, I feel like everyone I know who's really dialed in wants to work on meaningful stuff right now and i hope that lasts for some period of time 
Yeah, I hope so too. I hope so too. I mean, I've I've got a saying uh, that I've had uh, sort of in my mind about projects that I get involved with or things that I think I want to do, and it's very simple. Uh, I don't want to make future garbage. Um, and so making things that are open source is uh, super handy as a way to say, you know, will this be something that the open source community can benefit from? Because if you're making something that is designed well, that has affordances, people can use it for other things. And it's not going to be like a one-time use thing or just like a plastic toy that you just throw away or whatever. Um, and I think the other thing I wanted to uh, add to what you said um, Harris is that um, the uh, uh, the thing that because uh, being involved with the pulse sensor and open BCI and Timpin and engaging with people in the open source community and the maker community there are a lot of people who have um, strong opinions about federal regulations of, of devices and these kinds of things I am of the opinion that these are important regulations um, it's important to be able to say you know do we, you know, as a as a community, as a country, as a government or whatever, care about our people and we want to make sure that we don't have a bunch of folks selling snake oil or offering some, you know, broken equipment that's supposed to do something. I don't know what it's going to do. Flare your nostrils or whatever, right? Um, but, uh, uh, but that said, um, it's also important to understand what these regulations are. And I think that there's... It's a, it's a really good uh, moment for some real education to happen about um, how these regulations are structured, what's important about them, why they're there, and then to say, in these types of situations where thinking, things can be so acute and you can have a real emergency where we don't have enough equipment and people will die because of the lack of equipment, what are the things that we can do within alongside the regulations to to help to provide you know some relief and to to um sort of ex expand if you will the ability uh, uh to provide care into the margin area uh around the regulation and i think that's a i think that this this event project is a good example of that of how you can say okay well look we're we're in a horrible situation. We have to do something. What is the best way for us to do something really f***ed up? You know. Oh, I love it. No, that's absolutely perfect. And it's you know I, I think I think you're you're taking the right approach, or the event group is taking the right approach. With you approach you work with the FDA, right? And it's not you know you're not trying to make a full blown ventilator. You're trying to make something that can work more or less and help. Alleviate some of the stress that's needed by all the ventilators out there. You know, take pressure off the numbers. You know, the numbers game, but you can still get more or less FDA approval and work with them to make sure that hey, we are meeting. Like you said, we meet these regulations that and they exist to ideally help people. They want to help people and make sure that people don't die from this equipment or get seriously injured. Um, and working with these small communities and makers you can find ways to do that and still be able to help. I think that's a great point. Yeah, and uh, the other really good thing too, and I've been, uh, uh, you know, of course in contact with the team, um, they do uh, and will open source the work that they're doing so that it will be available. All of the 
physical designs, all of the firmware designs and all this stuff so people can look at the algorithms and they can learn about what it's what it takes to actually make this thing something that is useful um and i've got i've i'll probably be the one to put the uh the designs up for uh oshawa certification in the next week or two which is something i'm super proud of of course um uh, uh just doing my small part um, but, uh, uh, the other thing too, is like, you know, you talk to doctors and these people are haggard. They are absolutely worked to the bone and they are haggard and they are not going to put up with shit. You can't go to the doctor with the thing you stuck together with duct tape and crazy glue in your basement and expect them to say, yeah, I'm going to use this unless we're like in a extremely serious fucked up situation that you don't want to be in. These doctors and healthcare providers and primary care people are going to say, how is this going to work and how do I know it's going to work? They're, they want assurances. And that's also what you know these regulatory bodies do is they're sort of a gatekeeper that then says, here is a device that does fit the need and it passes our rules for a thing that is going to actually work to help save somebody. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So where can, if somebody who's listening, where can they go to get information about the event or can they contact you or the group that's heading this up to you know maybe produce their own in their own community once it goes open source? Yeah, uh, well, I think once it goes open source, it's gonna be publicized rather wildly. Um, uh, what, the reason why they're holding on to it right now is because they wanna protect their supply chain. Um, you know, they don't want someone buying up all the stepper motors that they want to use because they need to make, they're planning on making, you know, tens of thousands of these things. So they don't, they need to protect that, um, which is totally understandable. Um, but uh, you can go to, um, uh, what is it, event, it's e-vent.mit.edu. That gets you to that original uh, design. Um, and then the, as I mentioned, the work that we're, that have been, has been done by the New York City team is, uh, closely held at this point, but it will be published. I know that people in the city and the state are aware of it and it's, um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be hard to miss once they start producing them and getting them out there in the world. Great. Well, I think that's what we got, everything we got time for. This was awesome, Joel. Thank you so much for doing this. And I hope this gets information out there to people who need it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine.